From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. UFOs, or as they're now commonly called, UAPs, are all over the news these days. Most of us have at least heard of the Go Fast, Gimbal, or TikTok videos recently confirmed by the United States Navy. However, these are more recently documented sightings. UFOs have been around for decades. There have been famous documented cases from World War II pilots engaging with mysterious craft, to the granddaddy of famous cases in the alleged Roswell crash, to lesser-known sightings at the Chicago O'Hare International Airport. What are we to make when reliable sources such as pilots or military personnel report encounters with alien craft? This week's guest, Warren Ajus, is a longtime UFO researcher and author. We discuss his new book, Evidence of Extraterrestrials, Over 40 cases prove aliens have visited Earth. It's a fascinating look at some of the world's most famous cases, as well as some you may not have heard of. Welcome to this week's episode, Evidence of Extraterrestrials, on From the Void. All right, very excited to uh, uh, to have this next guest on, Warren Aegis. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Of course, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So your book, uh, Evidence of Extraterrestrials, uh, has over 40 cases. Um, you cover a lot of ground. So I, I really enjoyed this book because not only do you talk about some of the more well-known cases, but you also talk about some of the lesser-known cases as well. So what originally got you interested in the topic of uh, extraterrestrials and UFOs? Okay, so first of all, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and I first read the book by Jim Mars. It's called, it's called Alien Agenda, and it's, and it's an amazing book. Um, and that book essentially opened, um, opened my eyes to, to how big the phenomenon is. Um, but the more I read, I noticed that there was a discrepancy between the literature out there. Um, most of the literature was based on, um, wasn't based on factual evidence. Um, and some theories were quite far-fetched, to be honest. Um, so I wanted something that would essentially analyze the most significant cases in one book, but using actual Air Force documents. Um, in fact, that's one thing that I'm most proud of in the book, is that um, the, all the information, it's, it's by credible witnesses, by the classified documents. That's that's incredible, and that's one of the things. As a, uh, I don't know, I guess I call myself an enthusiast. That's one of the things that's always been the most important to me. As you know, w- what sort of uh, witnesses are we talking about? You know, and, and so often these military witnesses, which we've seen more uh, come out lately, are some of the most credible because they're the ones who are trained to be able to identify things flying around the sky as you know being you know just a run of the mill airplane or a bird or something unknown. Exactly, and and uh, and you said it perfectly that these individuals in the military, 
they're trained to differentiate um, uh, an aircraft from from a weather balloon. The, their entire job is based on differentiating uh, the enemy's aircraft to something else, and that's why um, these past few years have been so important to the UFO uh, phenomenon because we're seeing military personnel such as David Fraser um, in the Nimitz incident who are saying that they've seen these tic-tac-shaped UFOs. And these witnesses, naturally, they they are credible. You cannot even uh, think that these witnesses have seen something like a weather balloon. You know, they are credible witnesses. Yeah, absolutely. And and what's also interesting to me about all this information coming out recently in these uh, uh, declassified videos and, and all this documentation coming out is that the conversations are kind of funny to me in, in, in a sense because a lot of people are saying, well, what if it's, you know, foreign, our foreign adversaries, you know, have come up with this sort of technology. But to to acknowledge that would also be to acknowledge that they've had it for decades then because these aren't the first reports we've ever received. And so in your book, you, you kind of break it down between sightings, crashes and landings, military pursuits and government projects. So I'd love to start with some uh, some of the sightings. And one of the ones that historically has been the most interesting to me is the one that's kind of been nicknamed the Battle of L.A. Uh, because it's such a mass sighting and it also involves the military. So talk a little bit about, you know, what what that event entailed. Yeah. So the Battle of L.A. was actually the first UFO case, which 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 made me which blew my mind essentially uh because this this case it, it's it's unique you know you have thousands of witnesses who in the middle of the night they they heard the air raid siren and this was um just three months after pearl harbor so everyone was feeling anxious including the military they were carrying out a lot of drills uh, just in case the japanese would attack again but what happened was that on the on the 25th of february the air raid sirens uh, were heard, but all the people saw was a massive silver um, uh, cigar-shaped object in the sky. And along with the massive um, main UFO were smaller ones. And so there was the main cigar-shaped aircraft as well as the smaller ones surrounding it. And what makes this sighting credible and mind-blowing is that for over an hour, the the military they shot anti-aircraft shells towards these ufos but to no avail you know they weren't shot down and what i find interesting you know late uh, decades after this this sighting happened is that this information um means that the the ufos must have had a force field of some sort um and that ties in perfectly with the idea that ufos operate with an anti-gravity propulsion system because if they operate on an anti-gravity propulsion system that means that they create their own uh, gravitational wave and a force field so what i mean by all of this is that we have only recently known that these aircraft operate using anti-gravity systems and if we look back to the battle of la we are seeing that the characteristics of a gravity propulsion system they match perfectly with the characteristics we see um, on the Battle of LA. Um, so going back to the sighting, um, essentially the aircrafts, they were not shut down um, and the objects just disappeared out of nowhere. Um, well, as, as we will see 
in, in all of the cases, essentially, is that the Air Force simply stated that it was a weather balloon. Um, and I obviously, in my book, I write that how could it be a weather balloon when you just spent an hour shooting anti-aircraft shells towards it? If it was a weather balloon, it would have been shot down instantly. Uh, and they noticed that discrepancy. The Air Force noticed that, and then they changed their statement. They stated that it was um, a Japanese aircraft sent to induce psychological terror. Uh, but once again, I question if it was a Japanese aircraft, why wasn't it shot down? If it was a Japanese aircraft, why weren't American fighter jets scrambled? That's the whole point of the Air Force, to protect the national airspace. So if you're saying that it, there is a Japanese aircraft, you're, you're, you're saying that the Air Force was incapable of protecting its own nation from the attack again after Pearl Harbor. Yeah, it seems seems like they really enjoy using the weather balloon excuse as well, because we see this. Yeah, we see this in uh, in Roswell's, uh, at least initially, and then they kind of backtrack that statement as well, which we'll we'll get to. But um, some of the other instances beyond the Battle of L.A., which obviously, you know, tons of, of witnesses in that instance. But another one that I thought was fascinating that I that I wasn't aware of um, was just this. Uh, this uh, massive UFOs that uh, the sighting that took place over the actual White House. Yeah, yeah, in 1952. Um, it was actually a wave of, of sightings. Um, it happened over two weekends. Um, and what happened is that um, uh, on, in 1952, um, essentially um, the, the air traffic control operators, they started noticing um, certain... Uh, targets showing up on the radar and they they were completely unidentified they confirmed that it wasn't conventional aircrafts they confirmed that it wasn't uh, military aircrafts either which meant that they were unidentified now as as the objects started approaching washington uh, you know the alarms were raised they were saying you know what are these objects they're approaching the capital um, but you know we need to identify them and these lights they were observed by several individuals, several military men. Um, and this is, this, the sighting is classified as a radar and visual sighting because it's corroborated by the radar sightings, which makes it more credible, naturally. Um, so what happened was that um, this was in July of 1952. Um, on the 29th, that these aircraft, they started, they started moving towards the capital. And the Air Force, they scrambled a fighter jet. But, you know, he was uh, Patterson, who was Lieutenant Patterson. He was able to make visual contact with four white objects outside his cockpit window. Um, and at the same time, he was able to track them on his radar as well. But he was unable to lock down with them. So these aircrafts were so fast that even uh, the, the best fighter jets that the Air Force had, they couldn't keep up with them. They couldn't lock down on them. And on one instance, as he was gaining on the UFO, as he was trying to close down, the UFO responded um, according to his movements. And what happened was that two UFOs, they, they surrounded his fighter jets, two on each side. Um, and, and, you know, Patterson was, was talking to the air traffic control operators, asking them, what, 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 what do I do, you know? Um, but they do not respond. They do, do not, they do not respond to his questions because, you know, they've never been in that situation before. Um, and then the objects just disappear 
they disappear in an instant and that's the last anyone ever saw them again um and interestingly enough um the air force simply stated that it was um well the radar uh, what showed up on radar was misidentification um and uh, you know it was completely unexplained they were unable to unexplain what the ufo was um uh, so this case is still it's still it's still an it's still unexplained um but the official explanation states that it was a temperature inversion um so what we will see is that alongside the weather balloon explanation the Air Force uses the temperature inversion explanation quite a lot to explain UFOs and to explain to the listeners what a temperature inversion is, is that when a layer of cold air mixes with a layer of warm air and it creates some sort of natural phenomenon. But once again, it just does not match up, you know, it does not hold true. We have to keep in mind that these Air Force pilots, they have been trained for years and they are able to distinguish a, a moving flying object to a natural phenomenon. Yeah, and what's, what's also interesting is, as you said, this is an occurrence that, uh, that took place in 1952 and yet uh, bears so much uh, of a similar resemblance to you know, what we see with the more recent videos that were released from like 2004 and, and 2014, 2016, where we see you know, an unidentified flying object that a trained you know, military pilot engages and then this object just seems to sort of almost toy, you know, with, with the pilot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and this is why, why, why these cases are so interesting. Um, in fact, I think that these cases are more important nowadays than they were back in the day because we're seeing that with the information we have nowadays and with the knowledge which we have nowadays, it still matches up with the cases we've had in 1952 and 1947. And it makes the, the sightings even more credible. Yeah, and it also seems to add weight to the argument against um, th this technology being just something that our adversaries have, you know, uh, have created. Uh, just in, from the sense that if that if that were true, then our what we would have to admit is that our adversaries have had this technology for decades and for some odd reason have not used it to their advantage. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and I always, well, I always say this in, in response, because many people say, well, if they're unidentified, you can't say that they're extraterrestrial. And that's true. Um, so they could very well be, you know, maybe Russian or, or Japanese or Chinese. And I say, that's that's not possible. Because these aircraft, they're defying the laws of gravity. They're defying the natural laws. No, no aircraft can even maneuver in that way. And, and I list, well, well I, I notice five characteristics which, are, which essentially prove that these UFOs are extraterrestrial. And the fact that they have an anti-gravity propulsion system, we cannot do that on Earth. You know, We still cannot create an anti-gravity propulsion system. Um, apart from that, um, they, ha they have hypersonic velocity, which means that they exceed the speed of sound without producing a sonic boom. Once again, that's impossible. Um, every aircraft on Earth, it produces a sonic boom. The third characteristic is that they are able to, to travel across different mediums, such as uh, naturally the sky, the atmosphere, and the ocean as well. 
um, in the Tic Tac UFO incident, um, they noticed that the Tic Tac UFO actually plunged into the ocean and traveled underwater faster than the fastest submarine which we have. Um, this brings me to the fourth characteristic, the instant acceleration. And these aircrafts produce, they travel at, at speeds which, which essentially would turn any human to paste, you know. They travel at 40 Gs and they exceed these, these G-forces which would kill a human being in an instant. Um, and lastly, the low observability, you know, the fact that we do not see them in, in high detail, the fact that we only see them in, in either as bright lights in certain circumstances. And once again, that proves that these aircrafts, they just can't be terrestrial. They can't be, they can't be um, uh, from the Soviet Union or, or Chinese or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. It seems that the the more evidence of this kind that comes out, and the more that uh, we unearth these instances that that occurred decades uh, ago, especially these these um, sightings that occurred during, uh, during World War II, for example, you know where the term Foo Fighter comes from. You know, we didn't even have jet aircraft. You know, really at this point, you know, we're we're talking about propeller planes. So these things are even the leap in technology is even more significant at that point than it is even now. Yeah, it's practically impossible for it to have been. Um, yeah, well, if for example, if they were German, then why aren't they? weren't they were used in, in the war? You know, yeah. we're talking about a UFO which essentially exceeds the speed of sound, and you're telling that they didn't use it in the war. You know, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I've made that same argument before. I thought, you know, when Hitler's you know being cornered on all sides, you don't think he would have pulled out his secret weapon at that point if he had it. You know, it doesn't doesn't make much sense. <laughs> so. A couple of the more recent instances uh, that that I think are really compelling, again, because of the either the sheer volume uh, of people who witnessed the sighting or and or uh, the the credibility of the witnesses, uh, I think are the first one I want to talk about, ask you about is the Phoenix light uh, from the incident from the late 90s. Uh, Talk about that a little bit, because even the governor was a witness to to this event. Yeah, and, and the governor's involvement was actually very interesting and, and naturally improves its, its credibility. Uh, the Phoenix Lights, it was in 1997. Um, essentially, um, a series of unidentified lights were observed over Arizona um, and several, several places such as um, California um, and Nevada. Um, and there was essentially a V-shaped object in the sky emitting a light. So there was V-shaped lights um, and these sightings were made by several individuals, you know, thousands once again, which makes the case more credible. Um, and the characteristics of the Phoenix lights were that it was V-shaped. It was as large as a Boeing. Um, it hovered silently, even though it was just uh, flying overhead, you know. Um, and it was just hovering silently and without emitting any noise. Uh, the objects were as large as 900 feet um, and two miles wide. But the most important characteristic is that they did not emit any sound, even though they were traveling at a low altitude. Um, so this is when the governor, when the governor uh, was involved, because he stated that um, if he is governor, then he should have been uh, notified if there were any uh, military exercises happening, because that's what the military said. It said that there was an exercise happening and they were essentially dropping flares. Um, and that's what the people witnessed. 
but the governor said that listen if if there were military exercises then i would have been notified of it but even if we look at a flare uh, um uh, a slow falling flare the characteristics do not match up we're looking at a flare that of course it's slow falling and it burns over a long period of time but the phoenix lights they traveled slowly uh, they hovered slowly across a large distance you know across across arizona across nevada across california um and the governor um simington um he stated that he just did not believe this explanation and he started asking questions but the more questions he asked the less answers he got and at one point they even told him that they're not going to answer any more questions and they were not going to even provide any explanations so they shot him down immediately um these lights were also caught on film there was an individual um uh, who caught these these lights on film and they were analyzed by by jim delitoso he's um he's renowned for for investigating ufo photographs and the analysis showed that the lights they did not match up with any lights which we know in the sky which essentially ruled out that the lights were um natural phenomena and he also no, he actually even confirmed that they were not flares you know he said that the lights had uh, i believe a subs like a large amount of red green and another color and these do not match up with the characteristic characteristics of a flare um so once again it confirmed the theory that these lights they were they could not have been flares yeah that's and that's what's incredible about it is as you said there is video footage that you can go look at it's up out on youtube uh which makes it a, a little different a little bit more difficult you know for you know the military to say hey this is just a situation where you're, you misidentified flares in the sky. Like an older incident, we have, you know, we had video cameras at this point and people who were looking up at the sky, tons of witnesses and caught, caught a lot of it on camera. So it's a little bit trickier to pass it off as just, you know, <laughs> flares or some sort of weather phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. Um, in fact, when we have a visual sighting, it's easily, it's easy to discredit it, you know, and you can either criticize the sighting you can you can criticize the person making the sighting but the second that there's radar sightings it makes it more credible if we have footage that makes it even more credible so the more details which we add the more credible the argument becomes essentially yeah absolutely and that's that's a good transition into my my current favorite uh event ufo event or uip event um which is one that I was not familiar with at all. Like I had heard of growing up, I had heard of Phoenix lights and I had heard of, heard of the battle of LA and some of these other instances. Uh, but the Chicago O'Hare airport one is very interesting because a, it happens at a huge, one of the largest airports in the country. And also the witnesses that you have, you have literal pilots, you know, whose job it is to know what they're looking at. And so talk about that one. That one's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting because this is one of the most credible sightings that um, not many people know about it. Um, so the sighting, it was in 2006, in November of 2006. Um, and we have to keep in mind that Chicago is airport. You know, there are thousands of flights every single day. Um, but on this day in November, it was in the afternoon and um, an individual who was taxi, who was a mechanic at United Airlines, he was pushing an aircraft back um, as it was scheduled to depart and he noticed 
um, this disc-shaped object. It was silver and it was metallic. Um, and it was rotating silently without emitting any noise, even though it was at just 500 and 1,000 feet, you know? It was just completely silently. Um, and the more he looked at it, he realized that several of his colleagues started noticing that there were at least 20 colleagues of his. They were talking to each other over the radio, and they even talked to the pilots um, uh, through the radio. They were um, radioed them through the cockpit crew, um, and they just stared at it. They were trying to make sense of what it was, but they just couldn't, you know, um, until the object essentially disappeared. Um, after five minutes, the object just shot up into the sky and disappeared. Um, and the most important thing that we have to keep in mind in this setting that it was over an airport, which means that any aircraft would have needed permission from air traffic control to naturally um, uh, hover above, even though no aircraft can hover above silently at an altitude of 1,000 feet. It's just impossible. Um, but um, a, a report was filed, and naturally with the witnesses, um, they made they made several statements, um, most notably about the, the fact that it could not emit any noise. And that proved that this object, um, you know, it, it, it couldn't have been extraterrestrial. The, the propulsion system was not visible. There weren't even exhaust plumes. Um, and essentially, they stated the official investigation, it stated that um, it's, it was certainly um, not, not a UFO, it was simply a weather phenomenon. But they did not mention what, what weather phenomenon it was. They just simply stated that it was a weather phenomenon. Um, and interestingly enough, um, as the days went by, um, a, a reporter from the Chicago Tribune, they, he interviewed a number of employees. And the employees stated that on the same day, they were instructed by management to not talk about it, to not talk uh, to the press, to anyone, and just essentially just pretend it never happened. You know, remarkable, and that's one of the things I was going to ask: is is how does how do you keep something like an event like that happening at a at a busy airport quiet? You know, something something that's uh, that it, that occurs amongst uh, not only a ton of people, but you also have again all of these credible witnesses who are observing this this aircraft hovering, and as you said, kind of shooting through the clouds above it. And exactly, and that that's um, that's the advantage of it happening over um, an airport. Not only because there were thousands of witnesses, but because these witnesses are credible, credible sources. Um, I would uh, well naturally, with thousands of flying hours, they are able to differentiate a, nat- a weather phenomenon from a disc-shaped object, which is able to accelerate instantly and just disappear. Yeah, and one of, one of the interesting things I, I had also read was that there was some sort of a, kind of a panel or a group that was assembled of, of various experts, including meteorologists, um, who released a, essentially a report on this incident and you know basically said, look, this, there's no way that it could have been this weather phenomenon that, uh, that they're suggesting that it is. And, and still we're wondering why, why are we not a little more concerned about the fact that we had an object that was witnessed by, you know, several multiple many people uh that was hovering over you know restricted airspace yeah exactly and that may, if anything that makes it worrying you know the fact that uh, an, an identified flying object is able to just 
hovers silently above an airport and the Air Force can't do anything about that. You know, that, that's terrifying. Um, and it's, it's naturally, it's, it provides a threat to national security, which is why the phenomenon is so important, which is why these sightings, um, they, need to be, uh, they need to be discussed openly, because this shows that this is why UFOs are important, because they provide a threat they, to national security. And that's why the government needs to disclose information. That's why people need to, to be aware of, of how these objects operate. Absolutely. And I think that's a good time to uh, to kind of jump into uh, the phenomenon of, of potential crashes or landings um, and, and with that potential recovery of technology that's far further advanced than, than anything that we have. And so one of the events that I've been looking forward to talking about that we haven't covered on the show yet is kind of the, the most well-known event of all time, you know, the granddaddy of of UFO crashes, of course, is Roswell. And so talk a little bit about Roswell because that one's really interesting because it takes place back in the 40s before it seems that the government really had a handle on how to respond to these these events. Yeah, that's very true. And and the sighting, like you said, it, it shows the, the government's um, uncertainty of how they should respond. Um, but we'll get to their response in, in a bit. So this, this sighting happened in July of 1947. Um, the sighting essentially put UFOs on the map. Um, it's through this sighting, through this crash, that that so many people are are they they've heard of UFOs. Um, so the crash, it was um, it was actually in June, not in July, and and there was this rancher William Brazel who he he owned this ranch, and and an important point to make out is that he regularly picked up weather balloons. Um, from his ranch. Um, so, so he was familiar with the equipment. He was very familiar with it. And on one occasion, he noticed that there was a wreckage. He found wreckage. Um, uh, and it was scattered all over the ranch. Um, he described it as being um, similar to tinfoil. It was very tough. Um, but he did not think too much into it. He simply left it there. He just assumed that it was a weather balloon. But as the days went on, he started hearing people talk about this UFO, which crashed, um, because naturally this, many people observed this sighting. And, and then he, he, thought of, he thought of the wreckage which he had found on the ranch just a, a few weeks ago. And he wondered if it, was, if it could have been the disc that people were talking about. So he goes back to his ranch. It was on, on, July, on the 4th of July. He went with his children. And essentially, they just look at the debris. It was scattered all over the place. Um, and as he got closer, he confirmed that it wasn't a weather balloon. There weren't any, any characteristics which could, which could have convinced him that it was a weather balloon. So he, he gathers all of the, the debris, and the following day, he goes to the local sheriff, and he, and he, and he tells George, George Wilcox that, you know, he found, he found this debris. Um, and essentially, the, the report gets, gets lobbied around through different, to different um, agencies until it lands to the Air Force. Um, and this is when the, the news headline, which reads, um, RAAF captures flying saucer, on ranch in Roswell region. That's when that statement was released. And that's when people realized that, wow, you know, the government actually is in possession of, of a flying disc. 
Um, but as as the hours went by, um, uh, they they changed their statement. They stated that that um, it wasn't um, a flying disc. It was actually a weather balloon. Um, but we need to describe the the material for a second because the material is what makes this sighting so important and then we'll talk about the bodies or the alleged bodies so so to go back to the material um the material it was similar to tinfoil you know it was made of metal um it wasn't made it was similar to metal you know it's difficult uh, the one thing I struggle with to when I talk about UFOs is to describe uh, the actual uh, material of the of the disc because it's not metal but it's similar to metal. Um, so it has this characteristic similar to aluminium foil. You know they can bend it, but when they do scrunch it up, it goes back to its original shape. They try to tear it up, it doesn't tear. They try to burn it, it doesn't burn. And they notice these hieroglyphics all over its surface. Um, and and that's what essentially question, made them realize that listen maybe this is the flying disc that 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 crashed. Um, and the response of the air force was very interesting because after they collected all the debris, it was months after the crash happened, they went to the ranch again to Brazil's ranch um, uh, to make to collect the remaining debris. Um, essentially, um, they 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 learned through word of mouth that there was they were still in possession of of the wreckage, and they wanted to collect it. So, if it was a weather balloon, then why are they so so pressed about collecting every single inch of debris? Um, now, when we talk about the bodies, many people say that they found two bodies. Many people say they found three bodies, one of them alive. Um, so uh, I guess we should start by describing what many people assume happened. Um, they assumed that they recovered three bodies, um, and, and, um, this individual named Dennis, Glenn Dennis, he owned a funeral home, um, and the Air Force regularly made use of it. And essentially an employee of the Air Force, they contacted Glenn Dennis and they asked him, to prepare, um, or rather, they asked him how to prepare um, a body which is which had been exposed to to elements for several days, um, and the body is childlike, you know, um, and that's when people that's when the word started spreading that you know um, they actually found bodies, but I personally do not believe that bodies were recovered um, because where's the evidence for that? You know, if if bodies were recovered, then why didn't Brazil discover them alongside the debris? Um, uh, and and apart from that, if we look into Glenn Dennis as an individual, um, he's not very credible. Um, he stated that he had a friend um, who was a nurse and worked at the Air Force Station, and he said that she was um, present for for the examination. And then we find out that dinners doesn't even exist. So essentially, Glenn Dennis made up this whole story. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm not. I'm, I don't try to convince people of what to believe. I'm simply stating that the facts um, do not prove that alien bodies were were recovered. The facts prove that an extraterrestrial disc crashed. But I'm unsure of whether bodies were recovered or not.
Yeah, I do. I do recall there being some di- dis- dispute over, um, you know, based on the number of witnesses who have come forward. M- more of them have come forward in regards to, you know, being witness to this this craft, this crash craft, and and the um, odd uh, kind of characteristics of the of the the metal and the material of the craft. And it seems like there have been enough people, credible witnesses, who have come forward who started to speak out later in life that that part of it is, is less disputable than, you know, as as you said, the um, alleged recovery of potential bodies. Yeah, definitely. And if we look at the witness reports where where, uh, there is uh, major Marcel, um, he worked with the air force and he was the first person who, who he took on this case. Um, There is William Brazel and his son, Bill Brazel. Um, They, they, they examined the, 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 the debris, um, and I think when it comes to the Russell crash, so many people focus on the bodies that they overlook um, the facts of the sighting. And the facts are what, what's, what's important because if we just fall down this rabbit hole of trying to produce a fictional story which will sell, it will essentially convince many people that, you know, UFOs are not important. They're just simply sci-fi stories to tell. Yeah, it does. It does seem like there's a, a bit of a disinformation aspect to uh, to that version of the story, uh, as if you know a crashed uh, flying saucer from another planet isn't enough. You know, we need. <laughs> well, um, obviously, Roswell is kind of the the big the big initial um, crash, or at least you know sighting of a UFO, you know, on the ground. The other one I think that is really compelling. Uh, that involves military personnel is the Rendlesham Forest incident. Ta- talk about that one a little bit, because that one even happened uh, more recently than, obviously, than than um, Roswell. Yeah, um, and it's interesting that we're talking about Rendlesham because it is dubbed as the um, British Roswell. Um, that's how big this case is. And it happened back in 1980, so it's fairly recent. Um, and there are several witnesses Um um, so what happened was that Rendlesham, by the way, it's in England. Um, it was an Air Force base owned by by um, by the Americans. Um, and on the night of uh, December twenty sixth, um, uh, there was an individual who goes um, who's um, he was an airman. He was he's John Barrows, and he noticed strange lights in the sky. Um, and these lights were on the west side of the of the base. So he drives towards them to, to, you know, get more details and characteristics. Uh, and as he's talking back to the base, he describes them as, you know, two bright lights, two, sorry, they are red, red and blue. Um, they're flickering and, you know, he's never seen these lights before. Um, uh, and then, you know, he, he, he lobbies this information back with the, with the base. Um, and, and essentially they get permission to, to essentially investigate the case. So there was uh, John Barrows, there was Fred Buran, there was uh, Cabin Sag, there's uh, Sergeant Chandler and Jim Penniston. These individuals, they went into the forest to investigate because the red lights, they started moving. Uh, they moved from the sky towards the inside of the forest. And as they started walking through the forest, they 
uh, they noticed that the light was actually mechanical in nature. Penniston described it as being mechanical in nature. He said that the object started moving backwards uh, in a zigzag manner uh, until the light disappeared. Um, and they essentially could not see it again. But a few seconds passed and they noticed that the lights were back in the sky. Um, and, and, you know, they just couldn't identify it. The, the lights were able, in a few minutes, essentially, um, they moved from the sky to the middle of the forest, um, unless, you know, they're two separate, uh, two separate objects. Um, and they essentially disappeared. Um, and what is interesting is that what not many people know is that the Rendlesham was essentially a nuclear arsenal. Um, just a few years ago, it was disclosed that um, Rendlesham it contained 25 bunkers uh, full of nuclear bombs. Um, it's essentially, it was, it was the biggest military installation in, in Europe. Um, and so I question whether the UFO sighting was was uh, related to the fact that there were so many nuclear bombs because a common theme that we see is that UFOs tend to be seen around around nuclear nuclear sites so it could have very well been because of that um, but but the sighting does not end there um, the following day actually sorry on the 28th uh, Colonel Charles Holt um, he, he investigates the 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 forest again you know to notice if there were any depressions any any marks any branches which have been burnt and and he actually he he views the object for himself um they noticed that uh first of all they did notice depressions on the ground uh, but then on the sky they noticed a red light um it was oval shaped it had a bread bright red color um but alongside it were two other ufos and he states that they were sort of dancing around, you know, like, like a bright Christmas tree. Um, and the lights remained visible for roughly um, three hours until they just disappeared out of sight. Um, and what is interesting, and I urge your listeners to do, is that um, as, this, as he did this investigation, he recorded it. Um, and if you Google the uh, Holt memo, you can actually listen to the recording tape. And it's highly interesting because you can notice the emotion, you know, the shock. And the fright as they as they're looking at this at this UFO, um, so that's that's the sighting. But we must also point out that in 1983, Holt, who is uh, well respected, he's a lieutenant lieutenant, and um, he actually wrote a memo to the um, military of defense, and he described the sighting in detail, and he um, essentially um, uh, he he was one of the first people who who brought up. Um, um, this massive phenomenon, massive sighting, up to the Minister of Defense in the, in the UK. Yeah, I think the the interesting thing about this case too uh, is that I think some of the detractors initially tried to say, well, it was this local lighthouse that they were seeing, and and obviously, you know, these guys know that you know they've they've worked at this base for some time, and they've I'm sure seen the lighthouse, and they know the difference between a lighthouse and an object. You know, yeah, and and um, and they did try to say that it was a beacon, you know, the beacon, and they started, you know, skeptics. They started bringing in these these uh, angles of elevation, uh, but but listen, there, there's five, I believe, five or six lieutenants. They're skilled. They they have 
years of experience and they've been on this base for years. They, they know what the beacon is, uh, where the beacon is. And, and you can't just say that these lights were, were coming from that lighthouse. Even if we look at the characteristics, it just doesn't make sense. They described the UFO as being red and blue, and they even saw it in the middle of the forest. I mean, how, how can a beacon light even do that? It just doesn't... I feel silly even just talking about it, you know? Because uh, we're considering a beacon light moving backwards in a zigzag manner, uh, being mechanical in nature, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, and it, it it's almost insulting to the individuals who experience this, and um, I, I believe if I remember reading correctly also, after the fact, years after the fact, uh, there was uh, radar um, radar readings or, or however you want to call it, radar, the radar, radar had caught um, this object or these objects, and so there was data there as well to kind of confirm. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe we can brush up on this a little bit. That An interesting point is that years after, after the sighting, uh, John Barrows, um, uh, he started battling um, health issues, which we, which he had not recently battled in the past. Um, he started developing symptoms, which essentially they were radiation exposure. Um, uh, and he started doing all of these tests. Um, and, and what is most notable and what we must note is that in 2011, the doctors noticed that he had... Um, uh, a valve had failed, um, and he essentially had the heart murmur. Um, uh, but as they tried to access his medical records, they just couldn't locate them. Um, they had mysteriously disappeared off <laughs> of the Air Force records. Um, uh, and after years of, of uh, legal battles, in 2012, um, he was able to essentially um, uh, get, get support from the Veterans Association. Um, but what uh, what's interesting is that his medical records just disappeared mysteriously um, from from, from uh, the data. <laughs> That's so interesting. And one of the things, and maybe you know the the answer to this. Uh, from from my recollection, uh, the presence of of radiation uh, at these sites has something to do with the fact that if there's an object traveling through space, you know, out in outer space, you're being constantly bombarded with radiation. And so it uh, kind of lends to the idea that, yes, this, this object did come from, from outer space because radiation is present in, you know, unnaturally heavy levels around these, these spots, these landing spots. Yeah, exactly. And, and this radiation exposure, it's, it's common across sightings. Um, in fact, one of the first things investigators do is that they walk around with a Geiger counter. Um, and the Geiger counter essentially picks up on radar, on, sorry, on radiation levels. Um, and and that's, that is, we have to keep in mind that these objects, essentially, they travel through outer space where radiation levels are higher. And they also operate through an anti-gravity propulsion system. Um, so um, if, we, if we look at Bob Lazar, um, and he states, um, he essentially describes how a UFO operates. And he states that there is this fuel source, element 115, and radiation is, is, a sense, is essentially um, exposed to this element. And when radiation is combined with this fuel source, uh, a gravitational field is created. So the UFO will naturally have a high level of radiation because that's how it produces its own gravitational wave. Um, and once again, this information came out um, not too long ago, yet it corroborates with sightings which we've had 
for years and years and years, you know, um, in 1940s, which is very interesting. Yeah, and the, the whole story, you know, Bob Lazar's story is, is a fascinating one as well, because, you know, again, came out in the, the 1980s, claimed to have worked at Area 51 and specifically was working on a project where they, you know, very much compartmentalized different aspects of study on retrieved aircraft. And his job allegedly was to uh, help, you know, uh, understand the propulsion system that this this vehicle was using. And uh, and at the time, of course, you know, you either believed him or you thought this guy was absolutely crazy. Uh, and and yet the decades since then, uh, certain aspects of his story have, have been corroborated and have come true. Like Element 115 that you talked about, you know, it sounded like science fiction at the time. It, it did not exist. And since then, they've scientists have been able to isolate it and and create it in labs yeah it's easy to you know to, to ridicule someone when they when they make such claims Carl Sagan states that to make an extraordinary uh, claim you need to make you need to have extraordinary evidence and, and unfortunately at that time Lazar just couldn't uh, provide the evidence essentially yeah yeah so so talk about I think the next the next level here is, you know, you, you see you have a sighting and then potentially we have this phenomenon where, you know, there are landings or crashes where we, we see the objects, you know, closer to the ground. Uh, the next level obviously would be some sort of interaction with with uh, an extraterrestrial being. And one of the things that I think is interesting about your career is you had uh, the ability to talk with one of the more famous uh, abductees, uh around Whitley Strieber. So talk about that experience. And, and uh, did you find, because one of the things I really respect about your writing is that you stick to the facts and there's, there's not a lot of speculation happening there. So what was your feeling after talking to, to Strieber? Did you feel like he was a credible source and that he did in fact experience these things? The thing about Strieber is that um, first of all, when it comes to abductions, it's easy to discredit it. It's easy to discredit a sighting. Um, but what I will never forget is that when I was talking to Strieber, I asked him, what, what is, have you noticed the difference between who you were and who you are now? And he said, yes, um, I was innocent back then and now I am not. So even years after the, the experience he had, there's still that level of psychological trauma which he still suffers from. And... And definitely, I do believe that Strieber is, he is uh, credible. Um, his, his experience was corroborated by medical examinations, which he had. Um, but naturally, there isn't the evidence to, when we look at abductions, it's not as clear cut as the sightings, which I cover in this book. You can't, there aren't radar sightings. Um, you, you have to look at the, the, the witness report which the individual makes. Does it hold true? Does it um, even corroborate with other abductions? Does it corroborate with other UFO sightings? If it does, let's look even deeper than that. What did the individual gain? Um, what did the, uh, did the individual suffer from psychological and or physiological trauma? If yes, let's look even deeper. Um, did they go through hypnosis, a lie detector test? If yes, you know, the, these are all steps which we must take to ensure that the, the statements and the reports, they're credible. 
Absolutely. Yeah. You're, and you're absolutely right. It is, it is a, a much trickier road to go down based on the fact that the, from an evidentiary perspective, it's a lot trickier. You know, you're, you're taking someone's, uh, account of, of something happening and some cases there, there may be some physical elements to it. You know, um, you know, you can talk about implants and things of that nature, but with a sighting, it's a lot easier because, you know, there are, there's a overwhelming number of instances now that have been caught on camera and, you know, we've got pictures and video and all sorts of things, but you know, these, these types of experiences, a little, little trickier. So talking about, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about, uh, military, uh, encounters here, because what's really interesting to me is we've got somebody like Colonel Gordon Cooper, who was uh, military military pilot, but not only that, but one of the uh, the first astronauts in the I believe is the Mercury or Gemini program, and and he had an encounter uh, as well, which I I find very interesting. Yeah, um, and and he is one of the first people who, who well, not the one of the first people, but he spoke openly about about um, uh, his belief that you know we're, we're not alone. Um, and Colonel Cooper, um, this, this sighting. So we have to, let's if we look at the background. He is has t- hundreds of hours. He fought um, in wars, um, and and his sighting per, um, specifically. It happened, I believe. He had numerous sightings, right? Um, but the one that the one that um, I write about in the book, it happened in, I believe. If I can have a look, yeah, it was in 1951 exactly. So he was stationed in, in Germany. Um, first of all, before I go into the into the sighting itself, many people say that Cooper he saw UFOs when he was out in space. He never said that. Yeah, <laughs> there isn't evidence to support that. Um, so going back to here on Earth, it was in 1951. He was stationed in Germany, and and one day he will he received a, an alert that there was a UFO in the sky. And, and as he received this, this alert, he jumped into his fighter jet and he climbed at an, at an altitude of 45,000 feet. But on radar, he noticed that uh, the target, the blip, it was still hundreds of feet above. And, and that, I mean, that's, a subs- that's very significant. It, it, it's a very high altitude for that time. And he was able to make a visual sighting um, and he, it was saucer-shaped. You know, it had, it had that typical disc-shaped object. Um, so the question was, was it uh, military, was it Soviet, um, or was it a weather balloon? But, you know, Cooper was adamant that, that it was, it was uh, a UFO, uh, potentially extraterrestrial. Um, and, uh, and interestingly enough, that over the next days, individuals started sighting uh, people in his squadron, they started noticing these UFOs in the sky. To the, and they tried to intercept them on numerous occasions, you know, they tried to chase them down, but each time they would just climb higher and higher until they couldn't go to those altitudes. They, the UFOs would respond by traveling, um, they would outspeed them, they would travel at instant accelerations, um, and they just couldn't keep up with them. So at that point, they just gave up and they just observed them you know cooper states that um at one they, that they gave up on them and they just simply sat back and just observed these objects as though it was an air show of some sort um what i like most about cooper is that although his sighting is very important his subsequent 
experience with UFOs is even more important and even more interesting. Um, after Cooper, um, uh, after he he finished with um, in West Germany, after he finished in West Germany, he was in part of a project, part of a project essentially um, on a lake dry bed, and the project essentially it involved um, a group of men, uh, Cooper's team. They they essentially film this aircraft land on the dry lake bed, um, and. And all they had to do was, you know, set up a camera and they just filmed the, the aircraft land. But on one point, on one occasion, it was in 1957 in May, that his team, they set up the camera um, and they noticed that this disc-shaped object, it appears in the sky and it starts hovering slowly. And it, it lands perfectly on the great lake bed and it stays there, stays there for a couple of seconds. And as the individuals, they, they get closer to it to get a better picture, it's essentially shot up in the sky and disappeared. Um, so they run towards Cooper's office and they tell him, listen, we just literally caught a, a flying disc on tape. You have to see the footage. And, and he does see the footage and he does see the, the disc shape. And, and of course, he says that he has to report it to the Pentagon. You know, he can't keep it to himself. And he hands in the, the footage, but he never hears from it again. You know, he never receives a reply. Um, so essentially, he never hears anything. There was no investigation or anything. And he later writes uh, a letter to the United Nations. Um, he made and he made several efforts to talk about the phenomenon. Um, he wrote letters, um, most notably to the United to the United Nations, and he says that um, uh, you know these pose a threat to national security. Um, they 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 essentially they have uh, technology which is so advanced that we just can't comprehend. Um, so so that was Cooper's experience with with UFOs. Um, I do encourage people to look into the subsequent encounter he had because um, it's definitely um, most most more interesting than the first one. That's that's so fascinating. What's and what's funny to me about this is the way in which you just described kind of this encounter. If somebody just tuned in to this conversation, they would think that we were talking about, you know, the Go Fast video or the Gimbal uh, video, you know, or one of these more recent encounters and yet this happened took place almost 70 years ago and yeah, you know, and we're still having the same conversations today. Well, it, what, is it Russian? Is it, you know, is it Chinese? Like, you know, and, and this, you know, we've been seeing these craft performing the same types of maneuvers and running circles around us for decades at this point. I mean, if they were Soviet or Chinese, I think we would have find out by now. You know, it's been, <laughs> I would assume it's, been so. <laughs> it's been so many years. I, I would hope that we would have found out that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I've you know, discussed with my friends, uh, uh, you know, when we we're talking about this topic, uh, you know, I said, number one, they've, you know, if that is true, they have not, our adversaries have not, certainly not used it against us yet over the past, you know, uh, 50 to 70 years. And on top of that, if our, uh, you know, if our, um, you know, the CIA and all of these uh, different agencies have not uncovered information to tie this, you know, this technology to our adversaries, then it, it would be the largest intelligence failure in the history of our country, I would think. In, indeed. Indeed. And if we look at the budget, uh, <laughs> like there's trillions of dollars. Lockheed Skunk Work essentially took to create an aircraft. They spent billions and billions. And still that aircraft, it, it cannot produce the maneuvers which these UFOs 
produced. And that's, that says something, you know? Yeah, that, that's an excellent point because the United States, you know, for people that don't know, I believe last year, the budget was some, somewhere around the, the, the range of $700 billion just in defense, which is more than the next six countries combined, which by the way, includes Russia and China. Uh, in terms of spending. So if they beat us to it, then we just wasted a ton of money. <laughs> so <laughs> so the, the last thing I want to cover, and, and this is kind of the last section of your book that I think is really interesting, is the fact that for f- folks who are just now getting into kind of the UAP, UFO, uh, you know, thing, it, it, they're familiar with probably ATIP. You know, Luisa Elizondo w- was the head of this recent program, but there were many programs that preceded this. And what's really interesting is the first one you talk about in the book, Project Sign, uh, the, you know, there's a commander, Lieutenant General Nathan Twinning, uh, writes, you know, he acknowledges that the phenomenon was real and it was not weather balloons or natural phenomenon, weather related, but the objects are real and able to outmaneuver any conventional aircraft, which again, sounds exactly like what we're hearing recently. Exactly. Um, and that's, uh, you know, many people focus on project blue book, um, or project the grudge. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we have to talk about them, of course, but Project Sign, I, I think when we look at the past um, attempts by the government, by the Air Force to explain the phenomenon, Project Sign came the closest to it, I believe. That's my opinion. Um, because, um, you know, he states that it's not, um, I mean, he states that it's not fictional. It is completely real. He describes the objects, you know, that they're disc-shaped. He explains that they cannot be natural phenomena or or weather balloons, and and he essentially rules out any other hypotheses except for the extraterrestrial hypothesis. So so yeah, talk about so we have various programs that that and in the public forum anyway have been acknowledged that the government has has partaken in in at least some lukewarm you know attempt to investigate UFOs, but it seems like a lot of these were really more designed to kind of, you know, steer the, I don't know, the public away from the phenomenon as opposed to do any real kind of scientific investigation. So like, you know, we've got sign and then you mentioned Project Grudge, the Robertson panel, the Conning Committee. So talk about some of the, I don't know, <laughs> some of the characteristics of these. Yeah. You know what's funny? Yeah, you know what's funny is that if you look, I mean, I mentioned, um, I don't know how many uh, projects there, but if you look at all the conclusions they come to, they're completely identical, you know? Yeah. So so I try to talk about these projects as though they're different. Um, and yes, they're by different individuals, but the conclusion is still the same. All the conclusion is the same, that essentially they are either uh, natural phenomena, they're either weather balloons, but none of these projects consider the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which is the most credible one. I mean, if we exclude ATIP and, and Project Sign, um, I personally find the content co- committee it, the most infuriating um, for the simple reason that it was so condescending the approach at which they took. Um, so to give the listeners a bit of background information, um, the University of Colara- Colorado, sorry, they investigated some UFO reports which were investigated by Project Blue Book um, and and um, on one occasion, so it's, it's called the Condon Condon Committee because it was run by Edward Condon. Um, he's a notable UFO skeptic, by the way. Um, but on one occasion, James McDonald, he's a he's a physicist, you know, and and he had numerous meetings with Condon. And on, on the, and in 1967 in July, 
um, he essentially has a meeting with Condon and he tells him, listen, um, this phenomenon is very interesting. It's very important. And these sightings, and he gives him a list of sightings, prove that, you know, these, these sightings are essentially extraterrestrial. And Condon literally um, fell asleep during the meeting. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Um, and then days after, months after the, the incident, uh, a letter leaked, um, which, show, which states that, um, if, and I'm going to quote him on this part, the letter reads the following. The trick would be, I think, to describe the project so that the public would appear a totally objective study, but to the scientific community would present the image of a group of non-believers trying their best to be objective, but having an almost zero expectation of finding a saucer. And what I read there was part of a letter which he wrote himself, Condon wrote himself, essentially admitting that the approach is going to be, it appears to be objective, but there's no way we're going to consider the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Which is which is kind of almost comical because that that's completely the opposite of the scientific approach, which is, you know, you 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 don't start with a conclusion and then find evidence to support it. Yeah, you you go where the evidence leads you. Exactly, exactly, and that's the one thing they didn't do. You know, they come with a conclusion first, and then uh, the evidence come comes after. And either way, they tweak the evidence to fit the narrative. Obviously. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I, I know we're running short on time. So the last question I'll, I'll, I'll throw out in front of you is um, in, in your research and, and digging through all of these declassified documents, what what do you think is the most interesting thing that you've come across that was maybe the most surprising to you? Uh, the most surprising is that how serious and how terrifying the, the phenomenon is. Um, I, I encouraged the listeners to essentially look at the characteristics, uh, the five characteristics I, I mentioned b- uh, previously, um, and just think about them for a minute, you know? Imagine there's an object, it's able to infiltrate national airspace without permission, nobody knows where it originates from, and nobody knows what the intentions are. And just those two questions, uh, I mean, they're terrifying, you know? Um, so I encourage people to when they when they do read about UFOs, keep that in mind that this is not simply um, a sci-fi story. This is a real phenomenon which is being investigated. Um, and what's most interesting to me is that even to this day, we cannot even comprehend how these objects are able to operate. We have no idea. Yeah, that's 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 by far the most fascinating aspect of it is, you know, the, the fact that we have, you know, and I know a lot of uh, UFO enthusiasts are, are kind of disappointed. You know, I think they were hoping that the government would come out and say, yes, aliens are real. But the, the fact that they've at least gotten to the point where they've acknowledged that UFOs are real and, and they haven't said what they are yet, but they also have left the door open. They haven't said that they're not extraterrestrial. But they've at least acknowledged that, yeah, that, as you said. That, that's a step, you know, that's a step in the right direction. And at the end of the day, there are, the cases speak for themselves, you know, the evidence speaks, speaks for, for itself. You know, you don't need a declaration by the government to state that ETs exist and they have been visiting our planet, you know. Just look at the evidence. Um, and if you look at these cases, you come to a conclusion yourself. 
Absolutely. I, I totally agree. Well, uh, Warren, thank you so much for spending some time uh, with me. This is absolutely fascinating. The book is phenomenal. It's it's a, a great resource for anybody, uh, especially if you're if you're just getting into the the topic because it's a one stop shop for literally um, you know the history of of uh, UFOs and uh, it's called Evidence of Extraterrestrials. Go out and get it. It's f- fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. So thank you again for for coming on. Thank you so much. It's been an honor and uh, and it's been a pleasure meeting you. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, John. Take care. What are we to make of the ever-growing number of UFO reports? Especially when the reports are being made by respected, reliable, trained individuals. People trained to know the difference between weather phenomenon animals, and conventional aircraft. When we've tried to make sense of the unusual using all rational explanations at our disposal, but it still doesn't fit, then what are we left with? Is it so crazy to think that in a vast universe filled with countless stars and likely countless planets, that at least one civilization, perhaps millions of years further advanced than ours, could have potentially solved the problem of intergalactic spaceflight. That perhaps some civilization figured out how to traverse the light years between us and are checking in to see how we are progressing. Is that so crazy a notion? Or is it our arrogance and desire to be special amongst this infinite universe to think that just because we haven't yet figured it out, that means no one has? Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I'll be back next week with a brand new mystery. Until then, if you've enjoyed the show, consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and a nice review. Also, consider telling your friends about us. Until next time, I'm your host, John Williamson, and you've been listening to From the Void.